We're in the seventh part of our Family Matters series, and uh, I just want to encourage you today to to uh, hear um, sort of a quick review from Colossians uh, chapter three. There's a there's a beautiful passage um, that Paul writes to the Colossians. A lot of people believe he wrote uh, Colossians and Ephesians on the same day, and in this passage he is he is literally saying. Um, if you want to walk with God, here's how you do that. This is the how-to walk with God moment. And uh, it's, it's like a how-to manual. It's the perfect how-to manual. Um, and so I'm going to finally get my Bible to that chapter. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 3. Lots of theology in chapter, in verse one, in chapter 1 and 2. Then in chapter 3, he just gives this quick how-to, and he starts by saying, verse 1, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is seated. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And so he says, we, we said it this way, you should focus on your future in heaven. There's no such thing as being so earthly-minded, you're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. But I do want to, to remind you, we're to focus on our future Think about heaven. Dwell on things in heaven. Um, this week when I was going through some real um, just weighty trials and um, just pleading with God, I just was, I literally sat with a couple of pastor friends and we held hands and prayed together. And uh, I just begged God in that prayer, would you just come on back? I would love to be there, not here. And I would love for my friends that are in so much trial, they're in such deep trials and going through so much stuff to be there, not here, because they're so much better than here. And uh, we should dwell on that. We need to get our focus on the things in heaven and set our minds there. Then Paul says in, in verses 5 and following, where we looked at uh, last time, he says, consider, verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passions, and evil desires and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So the Apostle Paul is literally saying in Colossians 3, 5, you need to have a funeral for your old self. Take your old self, say, hey, done with that, burial time, no more old self. I don't have to live to the old me, to my old ways. And he gives this whole collection of sins. There's a whole list of sins that he lists in verse 5. And then he starts over again with a different little list. He says you can put aside, look at this, verse 8. Uh, you think Paul might know some of us? Put aside anger wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth. You think Paul's lived among the believers for a little while to know what we struggle with? Do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self. And it's talking about literally since you took it off like a garment, now you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He's explained all that in chapter 2. When, when you were saved, when you trusted Christ your Savior, He gave you the new garments and He set you free from all of that. So quite a beautiful, beautiful passage that he's explaining to us here. And so, but when you get to the next section, this is where we are today, he's going to talk about the new you. And he says in verse 9, do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with evil practice. And now watch verse 10. And have put on the new self, put on the new self, put on the new self uh, who, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal which is in no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, and slaves, or free men, but Christ is all and in all. And so those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on, here's your new clothes, by the way, a heart of compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. 
forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against one, anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also um, should you. And so then he's going to talk, and we'll go next week, we'll look at the the last four verses of this passage. But what he's saying is there's a new you that's available today. There's a new you. That's right, Pastor Stan. A brand new you, faster, stronger, able to pray longer, read the Bible more, able to sing the latest praise songs in the Chris Tomlin key, able to watch your child's Little League game without using swear words at the umpire, able to witness even lumps in your throat, able to discourage and encourage the downcast, edify the brothers, serve the needy, even cut your mother-in-law's grass without murmuring. That's right, it's the new you. Yes, you too can be renewed. For only $19.95, I can send you a cassette tape that will help you be renewed. Just think of how jealous your neighbors will be when they see you coming down the street. Not that kind of new you. Okay, It's not, a, not an infomercial. Um, not that kind of new you. The, the truth is, though, we have been made new. Um, in the grammar of this text, it literally says, when you became a Christian, you became new in Christ. He literally remade you different, completely different. You're going to see that just crystal clear as we we walk through this text. We're new in the sense that we didn't exist before and God created us new in Him, in Christ. We were new. Remember the curse of sin, the fallen man. We were created in the image of God in Genesis 2. In Genesis 3, the fall of man happened and that image got completely damaged. I mean, really bad damage. All of you live in relationships, so you understand how that damage works. But the reality is there is no more struggle. There's no more struggle for us in Christ because we've been made new. And I'm going to show you lots of verses. Paul tells the Romans to walk in the newness of their lives, not in their old state. Our position in Christ is critical to our daily walk, and he's going to explain to us that we have this great position in Christ. Uh, We're being renewed constantly by the great work of God in our lives, Verse 10 says, as believers, he says in verse 10, and having put on the new self, Paul just assumes to the Colossian church, your new self is already installed. You've already got the new self. There's, there is a new self. Principle number one, that truth number one, I want you to hear today. You are made new and, look at what he says, verse 10, you've been put on a new self and you're being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of God. So God gave you a new self, and now He's continually, is the grammar there, He's continually renewing you. It's why some of you, when you came to Christ as adults, your brain started realizing things you've never realized before. Like, oh my goodness, that's I didn't realize how that works. Or I didn't, I've never experienced anything like that before. I've had several people tell me, as a matter of fact, some of the new believers here have told me, I never understood love, real love, till now. Till I got saved, I never understood real love. That's the new kick it in gear. And that's God saying there's a new you. Um, we're being renewed to a true knowledge. Ephesians 2 and verse 10 says, We are renewed to good works. I want you to look at this verse with me. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we've been saved by grace. Uh, so, verse 8 says we've been saved by grace, not by works. And then verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship. And what were we created to do? We are created in Christ Jesus, that's our salvation, to do good works. You know what renewed people do? Good works. For Him, not for us. We're not trying to go, hey, look at me. Look at what I did. That's the old me trying to get attention to me. But when we do good works for Christ, God prepared those in advance for us. He goes, i got so much good works that you can do. 
But in order to do that, you have to be a new person. You have to be renewed. That's right. The new you for only $19.95. Act now and we'll throw in at no additional cost a dictionary of Christian words you can use when you're frustrated. Words like doggone it, shucks, snaps, and zowie. You cannot be denied. You cannot be turned down. No matter how old, how young, how large, how small. No matter if you've got bad health, if your credit's bad, if your car's been repossessed, if your pet doesn't like you. No matter what, Stan, you cannot be denied. You cannot be turned down. Even if you don't have a personal website, you cannot be denied. You will be renewed. So call today at 1-800-RENEWAL. Yes, that's right. 1-800-RENEWAL. <laughs> well... Obviously, we've got a salesman in the building. So, um, but the truth is, you've been made new and you don't have to do grace is what brings that to you. It's already been brought. You don't have to buy anything. You don't have to call anything. You don't have to, to, to make any special phone calls. And it doesn't cost $19.99. It was free. What it did cost is Jesus' own sacrifice. When he paid that debt on the cross, Romans 6, Ephesians, uh, Galatians, and Colossians all explain this. When he paid that debt on the cross, it completely renewed you in Christ, and it made you new to him. And uh, so, so some of you may have gotten saved, like me, I was saved in the second grade. You know, So that whole new transition was kind of mild. Okay, But it plays out huge by the time I'm in my 30s and 40s because I have to think, I get to think, like he does, not in my old ways, or not in the world system. Now, if you've been saved a long time and you're still caught in the world system, but you know you truly got saved, you've been feeding the wrong parts. And you haven't been letting him do this Colossians 3 verse 10. Look at the words again. Put on a new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge. He's trying to give you that knowledge. The Holy Spirit daily instructs us into that knowledge. But you know what? We have to, we have to turn on the receiver. We have to say, I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to change. There's a big one. I want to change. I do not want to be the same as I've always been. I don't want to struggle with anger my whole life. My family has a huge history of anger. I know I've told you this before, but you know, Andy and my nephew researched all this. We were thrown out of Ireland for fighting. Ireland. Okay, the fighting Irish threw us off the island for fighting. Okay, because <laughs> we were just too. Mm. So we have a problem with anger in our family. And it runs deep in us. I don't want that to transfer to my next generation of kids. And I don't want that to be a part of, of me personally. It's not healthy. You know, so all of us givens are looking around at each other going, yeah, that's you, he's talking about you, yeah. yeah. And they'll get in the parking lot and have a fight about it a minute. So I'm just saying. But the reality is every one of us have these things that cling to us. You know, these struggles that cling to us. And they're listed in these in these passages, and Paul says, that's not you anymore. He renewed you. He changed you. And it's not necessary for you to live like that. So let me just give you some verses. Colossians chapter 1, if you backed up a chapter or two here. Colossians 1 verse 13. He delivered us. Look at what he did. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He delivered us from darkness and he put us alongside his son. That's change. That's a dramatic change. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, for the Father good pleasure, for all the fullness to dwell in him, through him, and to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. That's how he transferred us from darkness to light, through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. I want you to look at Colossians chapter 2. 
Some more theology that Paul puts behind all this that he's teaching, the how-to manual. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. See, you before you knew Christ, the Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 say that. Colossians says you were dead. Dead people cannot help themselves. Dead people don't fix themselves. Dead people don't make things better. They typically make things worse, right? But in, in Christ, spiritually, when Christ came into your life, here's what He did. He made you alive. That's new. You're new now. You don't have the old person only. Now you have the new you inside you. He renewed you to a new person. Um, having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, the decrees, by the way, are against our old man, and which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So let's just go through the list of what's new. It's listed in the text here in Colossians chapter 3, if you're in your Bible. You can just look in the text with me, and we're going to find five new things about who you are in Christ. If you've trusted Christ, your Lord and Savior, look around the room, pretty much know everybody that's here today. You've trusted Christ, your Lord and Savior, everybody here that I know. And uh, so this is this is a description of you, and this is what was new in you. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, <laughs> new things get tarnished sometimes. You forget. Oh, yeah, that's me. Okay, so this may be a little good reminder for you. Um, the first thing you have is a new image. Romans chapter 8. I love this one. Romans chapter 8, you have a new image. Everybody worries about their image. Everybody worries about how people are going to think about you and look at you, um, that kind of stuff. Um, I saw some pictures of me at camp a few years ago in shorts and said never again. I'm not taking pictures of camp in shorts. That's a bad idea. Okay, doesn't look good on camera at all. My image was tarnished for myself. New image, Romans 8, verse 29. Verse 29 says this, For those God foreknew He predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. Now listen to this. You're going to be conformed to the likeness of His Son so that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. So we are conformed to the likeness of His Son. That's a whole new image, by the way. You didn't look like that before you knew Jesus. You don't look anything like Jesus. You don't act anything like Jesus. You don't think anything like Jesus. You don't talk anything like Jesus. But when He saves you, He says, Now I'm going to conform you conform you. And it literally means to mold you like you're supposed to be molded. To mold you like you're supposed to be molded. Two or three passages in the Bible in Jeremiah and in Romans where Paul talks about, in Romans Paul talks about how uh, um, God is, a, is the potter and He gets to form us like He wants to form us. He gets to shape us like He wants to shape us. And the clay doesn't say to the potter, no, don't want that trial in my life. I don't want that mud in my messy mud. But the Holy Spirit knows how to work all of that mud into something beautiful for us and make our lives beautiful. So we've been formed, conformed to the image of Jesus. That's our new image. Secondly, he says there's a new classification. A new classification for us. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. He says, a renewal, this is a very important verse to me, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Here's what happens when we get 
reborn in Christ. We change classifications. We are no longer in worldly classifications. All that he listed right there are the classifications of worldly things. Um, he says, well, you know, some people think, well, I'm a barbarian, well, I'm a Scythian, well, I'm a slave man, I'm a free man, well, I'm a Jew, I'm a, I'm a Greek, I'm circumcised, I'm uncircumcised. Those are all the classifications people put on everybody. And Paul says, nope, not when you're saved. There's only two classifications. There's the saved and the lost. The saved and the lost. That's it. There's no other distinctions and no other divisions. And I'm in a group now called the uh, the Pledge Group in town here. It's a bunch of pastors joining together. That's what this yellow band is all about. And uh, sometimes you need to let me tell you what the, the word there means. But um, it's an absolutely great group of guys that have joined together. It's a group of pastors that have been together about a year. And they've invited some of us to join with them. And we're growing the group, trying to figure out how to keep the group real strong and healthy but grow. Um, some, of my church, some of our church folks went with me to the last meeting. Um, and it's a bunch of pastors uh, from every race. Um, the races are completely represented there, and we say there are no races in this room because we're believers. And they literally say we just erase everything right here. And the whole goal is to overcome racism that is not scriptural in the body of Christ. What these guys have decided is, you know, it's one thing for our community to have conflict with each other, uh, black and white, you know, it's one thing. It's a whole other thing when it's the churches. When the churches can't get along and get together and work together, that's a problem. Because in the body of Christ, there's not any race listed. By the way, just so you'll know personally, race is a created term. We created it ourselves as mankind. We, when we saw divisions, we, saw, we created those divisions and saw them as dividing groups. And it's a way we classify each other, but it never originally was that way. And let me just... Remind you, everybody in this room, I don't care who you are, I don't care what nationality you are, what color you are, doesn't matter. You're great, 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 exponentially great. Grandmother and grandfather are exactly the same as mine. We all came from Adam and Eve. Every one of us in this room. Okay, there's no division, there was no separate group of people that were created. You know, so when I hold hands at these meetings with my black pastor friends, we're brothers in Christ, true brothers in Christ, by the way, with the same bloodline and the same ultimate great-great-great-grandfather. But, but not only that, we actually are brothers in Christ around the cross. And we realize it's the only thing that changes. It's the only thing that changes and helps the world is when we put all that mess down. See, they're renewed. These guys are living their renewal out in a, in a meeting together. They're living out their renewal and they're talking about their backgrounds and their past. One of the young guys um, just got up and told a story of, of uh, as a 23-year-old engineer when he graduated college. He's one of the first black guys to graduate college in, in Alabama with an engineering degree. He was immediately hired by a city uh, or by, a, uh, by the state to go into cities and help set up the, the uh, emergency management service systems that every... every Little county and little state was trying to figure all that out. Every little group was trying to figure out, you know, how can we improve our emergency management? Well, this guy was hired by the state to go do all that. Young black man. He showed up in a county that he won't name, um, and, uh, and met the guy at the courthouse that he was supposed to be helping. Uh, older white man did a, you know, great relationship. They 
worked together for weeks, and uh, he stayed at a little hotel there, and he would he would help them get everything going and, and get it all. This is in the uh, late 60s. He was helping get their whole system going, uh, make sure all the, you know, the fire and the medical and everything was kind of work networked together, figured out what the equipment they needed. He came back a couple of weeks later and chased, lived there a week and helped them, came back a couple of weeks later and helped them fix it, fix it all up and get it working, came back another month later and checked on it. Everything was great. And when he came back, the older white man said, hey, would you do me a favor and just come have lunch with me and my wife on our farm? We would love have you out to the farm for lunch. She makes these big, huge lunches and, uh, you know, kind of everything you can eat like a Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, we'd just love for you to come into our home and be there with us. So the young black man said, sure, I'll be happy to do that. Well, he shows up at the farm, drives down this long driveway, comes in this beautiful ranch house and sits down at this spread. He said, you know, like nothing you've ever seen. It's just amazing. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's great. And he said everything there was alive, you know, just hours ago on the farm. You know, the chickens have been killed that day. The, the potatoes have been picked that day. I mean, everything was so fresh and so good. He was just so excited. And he said, then the man said, hey, I hope you don't mind the, the stuff I have over my mantle there in the next room. He said, from the dining room, I could look through this archway and see into the den. And he said, over the mantle was the, the symbol that said this man at the head of his table, the white man, was the head of a Ku Klux Klan for that county. You know, so he said, my heart kind of skipped the beat. <laughs> he said, I kind of looked at that and I looked at him and he goes, well, I don't mind that if you don't mind that I got my NAACP card in my wallet and I carry it with me everywhere I go. You know, and he thought, we'll duke it out right here, you know. And uh, the man goes, no, you've been a great blessing to our community. Just glad to have you here. I just don't want that to offend you. And this, this guy having dinner with him is the head of the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, he said, we had a great lunch and... He, he, the whole time he's bragging on his wife's pie, he's going to get to eat his pie, this homemade pie in a little bit. And he said, about that time, just before the pie, the door, there's this heavy banging on the door, and the two, whatever the next two guys down in the head of the Ku Klux Klan, the Grand Wizard, and then there's these other guys, whatever they are, come pounding in the door and come storming into the table where they are at the dinner table and, and, cussing out the wife and cussing out the family and the whole thing's just turned into this chaos and now the young man thinks, okay, now is when I die. This is going to be it. I'm done. You know, I just got myself in over my head here. And about that time, the head of the table, a white man stood up and he just told him to shut up. He said, shut up. You don't know what I'm talking about? And he goes, you're going to leave here. You're going to go back to your house and I'm going to meet you at your house and deal with you there. So I'm not going to embarrass these people anymore, my wife or my friend anymore. He said, here's what we're going to do. He said, I am, you're going to make an apology right here in front of all of us to my wife for saying those swear words. You don't speak like that in front of a woman. And he said, these two guys just put their head in, country boys put their head down, made their apologies real well. He said, now you're going to apologize to my friend. This guy's a friend. He's done more for this county than y'all have ever done for our whole county, ever. In three weeks, he's done more. And he said, now you're going to apologize to me. I'm the head of this house, and you don't ever come in and disrespect my house and my table. And I will deal with you when I get back to the farm. And and the the little black man said, "Yeah, <laughs> that's good stuff." And he said, "So so they go on, so they so they they go on out and and head back to their house." And he makes you know the the gentleman makes a huge. I'm so sorry that happened. I had no intention for that to happen. I didn't know they were coming. You know, I headed them off the pass. I'm so sorry that happened. He goes, "But to make it up to you." Can we can we just go ahead and have that pie? And he's like, "Yes, we still get to have pie." <laughs> so it's a phenomenal story, isn't it? 
But it's, it's because, you know, the race barriers were broken down between those two. And, and you wouldn't think they would be. Now I'm going to tell you the one other one that just overwhelms me. Um, Mobile, Alabama is known in the United States as having the last black lynching ever. Uh, it happened in 1981 on Herndon Street. Am I getting that right, Kendall? Herndon Street. The very last lynching in the United States of America is credited to our stupid little town. And uh, there was a trial going on in Montgomery that had been moved to Mobile because there was so much controversy over it. And one of the members of the jury was black and the rest of them were white and the jury got hung over something. And the racist in town here, the Ku Klux Klan, kind of went nuts thinking the one black guy was causing all this controversy. And so they decided to burn a cross on the courthouse, um, on our own courthouse here. So they had the whole Ku Klux Klan cross-burning thing there, which is horrible. And then the the head of the Ku Klux Klan for Mobile said to a group of people that were part of his deal, "Somebody needs to pay for this. We need to we need to make a we need to make an example out of somebody for this." Well, the Ku Klux Klan's head guy, his son, heard that, like, "I'll take care of that, Dad," and he went and. Um, kidnapped a young black man from downtown, and uh, they they killed him. They took him out of town and killed him, drug him behind the truck, killed him multiple different ways, and then took him back into town and hung him in a tree. Shameful, shameful. Well, it took a couple of years for the court system to kick off, kick in and do all that it needed to do, but that man was literally sentenced um, to prison. It was put in Holman and sent to sent to the death row inn and scheduled to get into the electric chair. Now, when I'm at this meeting... Uh, a few weeks ago, a couple months ago now, went to the first meeting of the pledge group. A young man named Julius stands up. He's a pastor of a little church here in Pritchard, by the way, in 15 years. He stands up and he says, I'm going to tell you my story. And he points at, there's a, there's a black and white group in our meeting here. He points at one of the judges. He goes, Judge so-and-so, you sent me to prison. I'm going to give you my testimony. You sent me to prison when I was like 18 years old. And the judge's like, oh, man, I'm really sorry about that. He goes, no, 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 I deserved it. And he had some some... Um, problems over in Texas, and so this man Julius has to go to prison. But at first, he got to go to Texas and pay his crimes out there. When he gets in Texas jail, he's led to Christ through a ministry that's in the jail, and he comes to true knowledge of Christ, changes his whole life in jail. Right? Then he has to come back to Holman to serve his time here for the stuff he had done in Mobile County. And when they sent him to Holman, Holman was full. So this young black man. Julius, saved, but definitely had a lot of trouble past, gets put in death row end, death row end at Holman Prison the same month that the fellow that hung the guy is supposed to go to the electric chair. And because he doesn't belong on death row end, Julius isn't, he's supposed to be in population, but they're just over full, and it's the only cell they got. They put him on death row end, but the guards feel sorry for him. And they just, you know, it's like, man, he's locked up in solitaire all day. He doesn't, not part of his sentencing or anything. So they would leave his food door open. They have a little door in the, a little slide in the door for food to go through. And they would leave his food door open. And so he'd have a friend They would open the door on the other side, across the hall. Well, guess who's across the hall? The last man to ever hang somebody, hang a black man in the United States of America is over here. And Julius, who knows Jesus, is over here. And they start talking. And Julius led that man to Jesus Christ in jail just before he had to go to the big yellow electric chair and die. And you want to talk about grace? You want to talk about grace? 
This man is in jail for killing and hating all his life for hating black people. And God sends a black man to his neighboring jail cell and requires sovereignly the guards to open up the panel so they can talk. And Julia's heart is not against that man, no matter what he's done. He said, he told me his whole story. Told me his whole story. I knew what he had done. He said, my heart's not against him. I just want him to know Jesus. Now I'm going to tell you something. And Kendall, you remember the man's name? The young man that was executed? It doesn't come to my head, but it's in, anyway. That man, that young white man that was the last person to hang a black person in our town, he's in heaven today, people. He's in heaven today. And when you get there and you ask him, you know, how'd you get here? He goes, oh, you're not going to believe my story. You're just never going to believe how this works. I hated black people all my life. And then Jesus had one save me the month before I was executed in prison for hating. See, in Jesus, there's no division anymore. There are no lines. We can't draw lines, and we're not allowed to. So whether they're Hispanic people or the Greeks or Hungarians or Romanians, I've been to Romania many times, and the Romanians and the Hungarians have this exact same division they struggle with. And it's just not healthy for us. Because the Bible says we live in a new classification, saved and lost. When you see people, you only need to see them that way. Saved and lost. Saved and lost. Saved and lost. Okay? Now, I added a third category that goes with our church family, and it kind of came up at graduation yesterday. I think they're saved and lost and weird. So, okay, there are some weird people out there. Some of our church are just, you're just weird, and we acknowledged it yesterday at, at the academy graduation. The Wadier family, Mark himself, the head of the family, the patriarch of the family, acknowledged we're just a weird family. And uh, congratulated Josh on his being part of the weird family and graduating. So, but honestly, you have to think through how you live your life because you're supposed to be new now. And when you're new, you don't see all those division lines. Stop seeing them and ask God to purge you of those things. That makes sense to you? And then, and then I want to remind you too that you have a new position in Christ. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, we have been chosen by God, Okay, and the text says we are now holy and beloved. The word holy means um, completely without stain. The holy items in the Bible were the, were the ones that were allowed to go into the temple after they had been blessed and promised to God. And they had to be completely special. Ordinary things never made it into the temple of God, into His presence. Only holy things can be in the presence of God. And so when Christ cleanses us from our sins, you know what He makes you? Holy. He makes you pure and able to stand before God. Now, you go, well, I didn't live pure this week. My thoughts haven't even been pure today. They have fought with my thoughts today. So I don't feel holy and elected by God and chosen to be on God's team. I don't feel that way. But the Bible says you are that way in heaven. See, we're, we're to be heavenly minded. And in heaven, I am... I am chosen by God and made holy and elect. I'm chosen by Him now. Uh, and I'm, so I'm supposed to live in a way that displays the works of God to, to people in your, all around your life. However people are around you, you need to live above the normal worldly stuff and just display God's holiness and righteousness to them. This is how we do it, not like this. 
That's not how you treat your boss when he mistreats you. You know, it's, you teach them by, when you're mistreated by your boss, you don't do eye for eye. No, that's the world system. You, you manage to minister to your boss. You could, you communicate to your boss, you know, that you respect and appreciate him and his position and you want to be a good employee, that kind of thing. So we're supposed to live holy and beloved to display everything differently because we have this new position in Christ. Christ put you in a new place. So that's, that's another new. And then there's this new behavior that's listed. Okay, and this is our new wardrobe, Colossians 3, verse 12. He literally says in verse 12, put on, and it's the Greek word, remember in, in the last study we talked about, he talked about putting off these garments, lying and anger and wrath and malice. It's literally to take it off like you would never want to wear that garment. That garment smells so bad. It's so nasty. I will never, ever, ever put that on again. That kind of deal. Uh, one of the first uh, first Team Jesus things we ever participated in as a church was at Municipal Park before we'd found Camp Grace and they found us and we got to work with them. We used to find different places we could do it. We did it at the uh, Catfish Junction on uh, back on uh, I-158 back here and we did it at the park one time at Municipal Park. And Edwin Attaway, that's how far back it goes, Edwin Attaway, our youth pastor, and I went into the, we walked into the lake, okay, wearing tennis shoes, we walked into the lake to put out a giant net and somebody had donated a thousand dollars worth of catfish, living catfish, that we dumped into the lake, but we put them in a net, put the net out, so that the catfish would be there the next day when the kids fish. Now in order to do that, Edwin and I had to walk out into that lake and get all the grass and the bleh, the algae and the stuff, away from the bank, right? And so we and we had these big pitchforks and we would pitch it up on the bank, pitch it up on the bank, and some guys came along and would put them in wheelbarrows and take it down and dump it in the other end of the lake. And it was just all this nasty stuff that lakes have, right? When we got out of there, okay, and when I got home, there was this smell that was driving me crazy. Like, what is that smell? And it was my shoes had been in the mud of Municipal Park Lake, okay? Not recommending you ever, ever put your feet on that mud, ever, okay? Because the smell of that mud was horrible, okay? And it wasn't like, hey, let's wash those shoes. No, those shoes are gone. Never saw them again. There was no way. That's what the put off in Colossians 3, 5, and 8 mean. Then when he says put on, now he's saying, hey, you don't have any of that other stuff, so you need to wear this stuff. And here's what he says to wear. Wear a heart of compassion, it's an inner drive to take action to help other people. Luke 15 talks about the Good Samaritan have a heart of compassion. Jesus himself had compassion, and he took action to help people. You need to put on a heart of compassion. You know what it means? You see somebody in need, you ask God, am I supposed to help them? And you listen. Don't run. Okay, don't do it while you're flying by. Or don't go, hey, was I supposed to help them? Okay, thanks, God. No, you go, wait, Lord, that, that person looks like they're struggling. Do I, do I need, are, are you, did you point that out to me for a reason? And, and then decide, you know, is the Holy Spirit giving you a heart of compassion for that person? Step over and help them. Ask them, is there something you can do to help them? Right? A heart of compassion. The Bible says we're supposed to have put on kindness, kindness and attitude. And, and, uh, that, that's what destroys, by the way, the, the, the garment you took off for that was abusive speech. People that abuse each other in speech aren't kind to each other. The Bible says if you're a new you, your language and your behavior toward another person is kind. You're always trying to figure out a way to be kind to them. 
And you're looking for fun ways to do that. I love finding ways just to prove kindness and gentleness. Uh, obedient to God's will. The Greek word is the picture of great power. Gentle, a gentle person, by the way, is very strong, um, but able to temper that strength and give it out as, uh, w- as a wise person would. Patience. Here's another wardrobe we're supposed to wear. Patience. The Greek word is uh, makrothumia. The word for patience is makrothumia, and it literally means, macro means uh, large, macro. Thumia is thermal, okay? It means large fire. <laughs> you know, like, patience means large fire? Yes. It was a word used of soldiers. When a soldier would be in a battle, um, and, and a, a Roman soldier would be in a battle, and it would get very intense, the heat of the battle was on, um, the soldier that stayed the longest on top of the hill with his sword and his spear and his shield and fought was said to be long-suffering, patient. He's a very patient soldier. And it means he endured the heat of the battle, macro, the longest. The thermal heat of the battle, the longest. So when God calls us to be long-suffering, He says, you know what He's telling you? Some of your battles are going to be long. Some of your battles are going to be long. They're not short battles. They're long battles. But I'm going to clothe you. The new you can do long battles. Can do long battles. And I just want to say to you, some, some of you here today, you're amazing soldiers for Christ. You are. You've walked through dark, dark times far more than I ever have, far more than God's called me to, between loss of loved ones or, or just relational pains that you've been involved in or things that are happening in your life. God says you're strong enough as a soldier to take this heat. He never tests us beyond our ability. So He's saying you can handle this. You can handle this. And He just wants you to take this clothing of long-suffering, patience, and hang on to that. Um, and don't, don't turn towards anger. But then look what happens when He... These, these are just clothes. Heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now the next two, He changes from a noun to a verbiage. And He says bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Bearing with means literally holding back, um, tolerating and enduring uh, complaints that are held against you and uh, just just tolerating it. You know, I had, I've had, I've been a pastor for a long time. I've had people say really bad things about me. I know it's hard to believe because y'all all love me so much. But I'm telling you, some people have, you know, gone behind me to supervisors and boards and very powerful people and said some very nasty things about me. And I had to just bear with that. The, 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 these two words in the Greek are participles. I know you don't care about grammar at all, especially you college graduate or high school graduates, but they're participles and they mean continually. You're to continually be bearing with, continually to be forgiving one another, uh, continually doing that. Um, the concept is that they're present tense every day. You're to constantly be bearing with and enduring. Well, how do I do that? Now, look back at my clothing. Like, oh, you've given me patience for that, Lord. You've given me a heart of compassion. You've given me humility. You've given me gentleness. You've given me the tools I need to do that, the clothing over my heart that I need to do it. Now I just need to apply it. And how are you going to do that? You're going to listen to the Holy Spirit. You're going to listen to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit be your instructor because He'll tell you how to do every bit of that. So the last thing he says, and just closes out verse 13 with, is that you have a new mentor. Your mentor changed. When you became a Christian, you weren't trying to be like anybody, whatever, whoever your modeling mentor was, 
takes second place to Jesus Christ. You're supposed to be just like Christ. Look what it says. Forgiving and showing patience and kindness and endurance, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, um, whoever has a complaint, just as the Lord forgave you, just like Christ, that's how you to forgive. You know who your new mentor and model is? Jesus Christ. You're supposed to live just like Christ. You say, well, that's impossible. It is, unless you recognize the Holy Spirit's voice who's going to give you the ability to do every bit of it. Listen, the Holy Spirit can stop you from saying any bad words. What was it Brandon said from cussing at the umpire? He can stop you from cussing at the umpire at your little league games. I've been there. I've watched a referee watch my son get wiped out in a soccer game when he was a little bitty. And I mean a kid just wiped out my son like a freight train, wiped Josh out. And uh, I was ready to go to that was a little Christian league too. It was our church, our own church league. Kids, you know, kids' parents are friends of ours. I just want to go beat the kid and then beat the parents because I know who they are. I'm like, what was he doing? You know, and the referee is like, I didn't see anything. I'm like, how did you not see that? Right? But I, but the the Holy Spirit changes all that in us, and we He teaches us to settle in and to see the spiritual parts of life and see the spiritual battles. Some of you are in spiritual battles. And there's warfare raging against you, raging against you, and you just got to fight it on spiritual terms here because you have a new mentor. And that's Christ. So how has your life changed when you met Christ? How is your life different? See, things should be different. People should, that knew you before Christ and after Christ, there has to be some difference. Y'all seen us do the cardboard testimonies and uh, what I call the elevator testimonies where you just can be able to say it in three sentences. You can just say your whole testimony, just spit it right out because to do that says, here's me before Christ, then I met Christ, and now I'm different. Before Christ, I was an angry person. I was... Uh, discontent, I was depressed, then I met Christ, now I'm finding peace in Jesus and I'm not angry anymore. See, there's a change. There's supposed to be a change. There's supposed to be a change that happens to all of us. I'm just asking you to pray about and think about how, how you've changed and what's changed in you, um, where, where your life has changed. Have you plateaued in your spiritual life? You may need to go back and rebury the old man. The old man, by the way, loves to get back up on the cross or get back up on our lives and and, and instruct us. But you need to put on the new clothes. So let me lead us in prayer. We're going to close in prayer.